Thanks, Eric. Harvest, it is good to be with you. It's good to uh, be at Harvest Indy West and have Harvest Indy South up here. Two churches, one mission, God's glory. Amen? That's what it's about. So if you have your Bibles, get to Mark chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you, page 848 on that Bible. But we hope you'll have a copy of God's Word in front of you this morning. And uh, as you turn there, let, you know when you're, um, you're watching a TV show... And all of a sudden you glance at the clock and you're like, oh no, there's no way they can tie this thing up in the next three minutes. And then what shows up at the bottom of the screen? The dreaded to be continued, right? This is kind of what we're stepping back into. Uh, We are continuing on the scene that we studied together last week in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12. So a little recap on where we've been over the last couple weeks, what Pastor Doug's been preaching, what we touched on last week. But the religious leaders, they're not too happy with Jesus. He's taken part in some things um, that have really rubbed them the wrong way. Things like the triumphal entry and what he was proclaiming with that. Uh, things like going in and cleansing the temple, flipping over their tables. And so the religious leaders are to the point now where they're like, this, we, we got to do something with this guy. Like we all need to set our differences on the shelf, get together. We need, we, he needs to go. And so what we're seeing, what we're studying, last week we saw the first one, today three more. There's four traps, four word traps for questions they're asking him, hoping he will take the bait, step into the trap, say something to discredit himself, say something that could lead to an accusation. And so last week, what we saw, a delegation from the Sanhedrin, they come to him, and uh, we called this one the authority trap. They said, Jesus, uh, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? And the implication to that is we are the religious authority and we gave you no authority, so you have none. And Jesus will not answer their question. He speaks a parable directly back to them. And we ended at, at verse 12, Mark 12, 12. Let me read that. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Not the end of the show, just a to-be-continued. And so we're picking it up here. Verse 13, ready to get in God's word? Let's do it. Mark 12, verse 13, let's call this one the tax trap. It says, and they sent to him, now who's the they? It's the priests, the scribes, the elders who have just come. Trap one didn't work, they're on to the next plan. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to what? Next three, what, what does it say? To trap him. Here's the motive, to trap him in his talk. Now let's understand something about these two groups who are now coming to try to trap Jesus. The Pharisees, uh, think of them as kind of the conservative right wing of the day. They're a super important political, religious group in the time of Jesus. They're opposed to everything about Roman control over them. And uh, they, um, they're not exactly, if you've read the Gospels at all, they're not exactly in the Jesus fan club. Jesus threatens their religious kind of beliefs. And so you have the Pharisees, think of them again as the, the right wing, conservative right wing coming. But you have this other group. The Herodians. Now they are like on the other end of the spectrum. 
Think of them as kind of the liberal left wing of the day. They're pro-Rome, pro-Herod. They're a group that existed to further the social, the political um, um, clout and influence of the Herodian family. And they don't like Jesus either. Because there's some things Jesus has said that threatens their political influence. And so what I want us to picture here is two radically opposed groups, two enemies of each other who come together to go after a common enemy. I mean, this is Rush Limbaugh and Hillary Clinton coming together against someone else. That's what's going on here. And so they come to him and they're going to ask a question. They're going to set their trap. But I want you to see how they set it up. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And Jesus heard that and said, oh, gag me. Like, seriously? They call him teacher, a title of respect that they had none for him. They say, hey, we, we know that you are true and you only, treat the, you only teach the true way of God. Really? That's why you're going to crucify him in a matter of days for being a blasphemer. And so they're just laying the flattery on thick here. Teacher, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. We know you only teach the truth. Now, what do you think about this? And here's their question. Middle of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Anyone think that might be a bit of a loaded question there? Trap set. See, they're hoping Jesus will give a direct answer to this. If he says, yeah, yeah, pay the taxes. Again, the plan is that he'll lose credibility amongst the people there. They'll say, oh, look, look at this Rome sympathizer. I mean, look at him, and they're hoping to discredit him. Or if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, they'll run off to Rome and say, hey, you got a rebel on your hands. You need to take care of him. The trap is set. They're looking for an either-or direct answer. And look at how Jesus handles it, verse 15. But Jesus answered them and said, no follower of Jesus will ever, 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 ever have to pay taxes again for the rest of history. And all God's people said... Is that in your is that in yours? Not in, not in oh, I must have read that in the message somewhere. Verse 15. <clears throat> but knowing <laughs> look at look at what he sorry if you have a message. I'm not bashing you. I'm not. Look at what he says though in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? I love that. He's like, seriously, guys? Like, you really thought that one was going to work? I mean, you really thought I was going to step into that? And they ask their question. And the first thing Jesus, the, the, the first thing it says that happens here, Jesus says, knowing their hypocrisy. He goes, I see that. I know your heart. I know what you're trying to do. Even if no one else sees what's going on here, I do. 
And now this isn't the point of the passage here, but I just want to call a timeout on us being in this scene here and jump into our own lives really quick. That as I read this this week, the Lord won't let me get past that. The beginning of verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy. And if there's ever a time in my life where there's sin, there's junk going on, and I think that I've neatly hidden it, if we think we've neatly hidden it, no one will know, no one will find out. And it's just like Jesus is looking down on us going, really, guys? Like, you don't, you don't think I see that? You don't think I see right through the mask and through the rituals that you got going on and through the performance you're putting on. And I just stopped there this week and it was just like, oh Lord, if there's hypocrisy in us, would we just repent and come clean right now? Because even if no one else sees it, you do. And he sees their question and he looks back and he says, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Then he said, oh, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now you have to understand something. When they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? I always read this and I'm like, oh, this is just a general kind of, hey, should we pay taxes? Uh, should we pay like property taxes, income taxes, sales tax? Jesus, what do you think? Should we pay those? Um, I think their question is more specific than that. I think it's a direct question on a poll tax, a census tax, a tax that would have been levied against uh, every adult male. The Jews hated this poll tax. And they hated it not so much for the amount. It was a denarius. It's equal to one day's wage. They hated it for what it represented. Rome's domination over them. A constant reminder of who they were subservient to. But they hated it for another reason. That this tax had to be paid with this Roman coin. A denarius. A denarius that bore the image of the emperor at this time, Tiberius. And next to the image was an inscription that read, A son of the divine Augustus. And they hated this because they had to pay what they felt like was this tax to this idolatrous government with an idolatrous coin, a graven image, words inscribed that should only be attributed to Yahweh. And Jesus looks back and he says, hey, bring me a Daenerys. Let me take a look at that. Verse 16, and they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And so he grabs this coin, and you can just kind of see him here. Looking over this coin, nodding his head, and he looks at him and he said, Hey, whose, whose picture is this? And all the Pharisees are like, It's Caesar's. And he says something so cool here. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So guys, if this coin has the image of Caesar on it, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
If the coin bears Caesar's image, give the coin to Caesar. But give to God what is God's. And if and in the very beginning, when God created man and woman, he said he made them in his own image. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God's what is God's. If Caesar's image is on the coin, give it to him. God's image is on your life. Give him all of it. Give it to him. All your worship. All your honor, all your obedience, all of your life. And Jesus says something so profound here. Flip the little coin to Caesar with his image on it, but give wholeheartedly God to God your life, which bears his very own image. And look at how they respond to this. What's it say? End of verse 17. What they do? They marveled at him. They were utterly amazed at his response. You want to know what that looks like? They're like that. That wasn't on the script. This was supposed to be an either-or thing. You were supposed to say yes, pay the taxes, or no, don't pay the taxes. And, and Jesus just expecting, no, 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 this, this isn't an either, either, an either or thing. This is a both and thing. It's not either honor and obey your governing authorities or God. It's yes, obey your governing authorities and what they implement and also obey your God. Give to them what is due to them and give to God your entire life in that. There is an uncomfortable application point in this for all of us. You know, and it's so easy, and and for all of history, it's been so easy to just kind of grumble and complain about those God places and governing authority over us. And it's so easy to watch the news and be like, "What are these? What are they? What are these people thinking?" And there are seasons in our life right now where, where we have to subject ourselves and come under the authority and obey people that we might not agree with, people we never voted for. And there's this awesome reminder here that obeying God and obeying government is not an either-or thing, it is a both-and thing. That we can both obey God and government when the government, governing authorities have not asked us to violate what God has set out in Scripture. And if this isn't clear enough for us, what Jesus says, put your finger in your Bible there and flip with me to Romans chapter 13. Because Paul is going to say something so clear on this matter in Romans 13 And as you get there, I'm just going to begin reading in verse 1. And look at what the Apostle Paul writes related to this subject here. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. Really? Wow. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give him the obedience and the honor that God's word requires of us, but give to God what is God's. His image bearing on your life. He demands, wants, asks for all of it. The political trap question. We're, we're going we're to vote. This is passed, this is failed. Did Jesus pass or fail? Okay, vote, vote with me here. Pass. Major pass. But they're not done yet. Another group's coming with another trap. And if this last one was political in nature, this next one is theological in nature. Let's call it the resurrection trap. Verse 18 says, And Sadducees came to him. And now it tells us something about these Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Now understand the debate that went on in this regard. The Pharisees stood on one side. Yes, there is a resurrection. Yes, there is an afterlife. Sadducees on the other side. No, there's not. There is no resurrection. There is no afterlife. This is it. A little about this Sadducee group. Uh, These were primarily priestly wealthy families. Uh, Sadducean beliefs would have dominated the Sanhedrin because uh, much of the Sanhedrin, uh, the majority of it, would have, well, they would have held to what the Sadducees believed. And so there's this debate that goes on back and forth between the Sadducees, the Pharisees on this issue, and they come raising this question as a trap for Jesus. And they asked him a question saying, verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died in the resurrection. When they rise again, Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Dropped the mic, stepped back, folded the arms and said, run that one through your afterlife filter. (laughs) Doesn't this just sound like one of those like word problems you would have done back in school? And I just imagine they threw this one out to the Pharisees all the time and the Pharisees huddled up, scrap paper. They're like, okay, husband one and four and seven. And Jesus just looks at them and he's like, oh my goodness, child's play. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, isn't this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Gasps. What'd you just say? Did you just say, I don't know the scriptures? 
Did you just say, we don't know the scriptures? The scriptures are our thing. The Sadducees believed they were the only ones truly zealous for the scriptures. They only held that the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, were only authoritative scripture. They said it was those Pharisees. They believe in all this stuff written later. They believe in all this extra biblical nonsense. We are the zealous ones for the scriptures, the true scriptures. And Jesus just takes their little point right there and he says, yeah, no. You don't know the word of God. And he also says, not only do you not know the word of God, you do not know the power of God. To believe in something like a resurrection is to believe in something that only God can do. That he can bring life out of death. And, and Jesus looks back at these Sadducees and he says, you guys don't know the word of God or the power of God. And then he goes on to tear their argument apart. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, we all ready for this? They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And every engaged couple who reads this says, oh, please tell me that's not true. Please tell me I'll be married to him or her forever. I was discipling a, a guy who is uh, in a long-term relationship with an awesome uh, woman of God, and we're discipling, we're going through the Gospels, and we come to what Jesus says here, and you could just see like the color rush out of his face, and he's like, oh, please tell me I'll be married to her forever and eternity. And Jesus just says, guys, you're assuming eternity is like it is here. Like the basis of your argument is flawed from the beginning. Because you don't understand the purpose of marriage that you're using to argue against the resurrection. Now let's camp here for a second. This isn't primarily a marriage question that's been asked and Jesus is going to answer. This is a resurrection question. But this passage, this verse right here has such implications for us in a, in a culture, in a world where marriage is such a big deal as it should be from God's word. So why why no marriage in heaven? Let's talk about three reasons why. The first one, this. Uh, there's no need to any longer fulfill the command to procreate. In the beginning, in Genesis, God says this. He looks to man and woman and he says, now uh, multiply, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In heaven, all of us, there is no death, amen to that, right? There is no death, there's no more dying, there's no more need to further procreate. The, the number one issue, why no more marriage in heaven, no need to this, fulfill this command to procreate. Second is this, um, there's no more need to fill this companionship void that marriage helps fill on this earth. Again, going back to Genesis, it says God looked at man and he said, oh my goodness, it is not good to leave him alone. And trust me, I went to an all-male college, and that is absolutely true. <laughs> like, there are things that we, like, just, we thought were great ideas. Had women been there, they'd been like, oh, please just don't do that. Why not? Just trust us. Don't do it. Men, where would we be without our ladies, right? And God looks, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone, a companionship issue. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
And God creates man and woman to enter into this marriage relationship. It fulfills a companionship um, void for those who God has called to marriage. No, No companionship void in heaven. Jesus Christ will fulfill that perfectly. And it's going to be pretty awesome. That companionship void filled perfectly by Christ, filled perfectly by other believers for eternity, forever. There's no more need to fulfill this procreate commandment. There's no more need to meet uh, this companionship issue. But this third, uh, this third one, I love this idea. In Ephesians 5... Paul writes to us that marriage is to be this picture on earth to the rest of the world of the bridegroom's love for his bride, the church. And so we who are married in Christ get this awesome privilege to display to a lost and broken world how much Jesus loves his church. Guess what? In eternity, there's no more need for the picture. In eternity, that image is perfect. The bridegroom and the bride united forever. And Jesus, he's like, yeah, I'm not even like going to get into the reasons why, but like you guys are assuming that there's marriage in heaven. And he just clearly says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven for the reasons and many more we've just discussed. But he goes on, verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he goes on to say this, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus goes right to the book of Moses, right to the only thing they held authoritative. And he's like, guys, remember, when God is speaking to Moses in the burning bush, he says, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Three men who passed from this earth long ago, but guess what? They're still alive. I'm the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And hear this right now. That the living God is God of the living. That there is the hope of life found only in Jesus Christ. And he answers them. And I love, I love, I love how he says this right at the end of verse 27. You're quite wrong. Nice try. You are quite wrong. And he looks back at their question. And he just says, hey, you, you think there's no afterlife. You think there's nothing after this. But hear this. The living God is the God of the living. And in a world that we live in right now, where one of the greatest fears, if not the greatest fear of most people, is what happens after these 70, 80, 90, maybe years that I get on this earth, if I'm lucky, what happens after that? And we can just sit here because of Christ, because of, that, of the fact that we have a living God who's given us the hope of eternity forever. We can sit here on this side of eternity with an assured hope of what is to come. Amen? We can stake our claim in that. 
We don't have to sit and wonder. That one of the coolest things, and maybe you've experienced this too, but one of the coolest things as a pastor is to watch the way a believing family responds when someone, a believer that they loved in their family has gone to be with the Lord. And yes, there's grief and there should be. We're mourning a significant loss, but there's this smile you can watch creep across the family's face as they're just realizing, oh my goodness, they're with Jesus. And I can't wait to go meet him there. That there's this assured hope of life after life. And now I just want to pause right here and say this. That maybe you're here today and and that question we just raised, what does happen after these 70, 80, 90 years maybe that I have on this earth? Hear what Jesus says here, that there is a living God who has offered life to you. That when all of us in here, that God's word just tells us we've all violated God's ways. We've all done things God said don't do. And we've all not done things God says to do. And he calls it sin. And the sin creates a separation between us and our heavenly father. And yet God loved us so much, he sent his son to pay the penalty of death for our sin. That when we put our faith in that savior, John 10.10 tells us we get life abundant here with him, life eternal forever one day with him. There is life after life. There is life after we die. And that life is found only in Jesus Christ. Our God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Theological trap dominated. One more trap to go. Let's call this the commandment trap. But I want you to hear that I use this trap word lightly in this case. I think there's a different tone to this last interaction. I think there's a different heart motive by the questioner. And we're going to see this unfold here as this question is asked. And it says this, verse 28. And one of the scribes, remember them, The scribes were part of that first group last week asking the authority question, and I just wonder, a theological imagination here, not in the text. We all clear on that? Not in the text. But I just wonder here, was this guy a part of the original group? Who came and asked, hey, what authority do you have for doing these things? Or was he standing on the sidelines watching his brother's dialogue with Jesus here, but one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Don't we love questions like that? Like, tell me the one thing. Tell me the most. Tell me the best. Tell me the biggest. Tell me the most important. And if I was this guy, I would want to know the answer to this question. Because he would have spent his life trying to live up to the 600 and whatever uh, number of laws in the Old Testament. And he's just going like, what's the one? 
Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. He raises the question and Jesus quotes back to him something he would have been very familiar with. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, the the great Shema. Think of it kind of as our Lord's Prayer. Like we learned John 3, 16 early on, everyone would have known the great Shema. There is one God and one God only. And because he is the only God, he is worthy. What we just sang of this morning, he is worthy of all of us in all consuming love, in everything that I am kind of love, in all my heart, in all my soul, in all my mind, in all my strength kind of love. That's the greatest commandment. Love him within all-consuming, all-I-am kind of love. There's the one, right? Verse 31, Jesus goes on. The second is this. And the guy's going, wait, no, no, time out. I just asked for one. I'm good. I got it. And she's like, no, no, no. These two go together. You can't separate them. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And right after he gets done quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, he jumps right into Leviticus 19, 18. They can't be separated. They go together. That an all-consuming love for the Lord will naturally flow out into a deep and passionate and compassionate Love for other people. That's so often in my life when, I, when I'm kind of, I'm sensing that my relationships with others are just kind of edgy and grumpy and I'm critical and I'm just like not very pleasant to be around and my attitude's just kind of like, oh, more people. It's not an issue this way. I always find in my life, it's an issue this way. I'm dry in my walk with the Lord. I am not full of all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength, love for my heavenly father. Because when we're full of that, when our lives are full of a deep and passionate love for the Lord, as we rub shoulders and do life and bump into others, what gets spilled out on them is this all-consuming love for our heavenly father. And I just kind of asked myself this question this week. What am I spilling out on others? As I live with, as I work with, as I do life with. Is there just like this deep and passionate love for the Lord that gets extended horizontally out to the people I'm rubbing shoulders with? And I just think for us today, what an awesome chance to go home and ask a question we never want to ask. To our wife, to our kids, to our friends, to people we work with. Hey, what's it like to be on the other side of me? Anyone lining up to ask that one? Like, no, seriously. 
as we just live together, do life together, like, do you sense that there's this, there's this deep love for the Lord I have that gets extended out towards others? Or am I not a very loving person? <laughs> when I get bumped and squeezed and the stressors of life get, get, get pressed down on me, what is it that comes out of me? And, and Jesus just looks at the man and he says, you want to know the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all that you are. May he be what comes on your mind as your eyes open in the morning. May you want to feast on his word because, because you just think, I can't even live without it. May you want deep times of prayer because your soul just longs to talk with the one you love the most. May you be motivated to serve others because in the service, God has brought so much glory. May you live an open-handed life saying, God, I want what you want. So you take it and you steer and direct my life as you see fit. He says, love him with that kind of love. And then don't split this because it goes with it. And then love other people the way you love yourself. And as much as we hate to admit it, we all kind of love ourselves a lot. <laughs> Just love them like that. And now what you would expect here, based on all the other traps, based on all the other questions, is for Mark to now write, um, and the scribe stood there utterly amazed, speechless with nothing to say. Or what you would expect this text to tell us. And the scribe walked away with his tail between his legs saying, I'm not asking that dude another question. But Mark gives us this guy's reply. And it's beautiful. Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus is like, you're getting it. This isn't a religion of ritual thing. This is a religion of relationship thing. You're getting it. It's not about what you can do with your hands to do for God. It's about what his God has done in your heart, of what you are in God. And Jesus is like, you're so close to the kingdom of God. And then this passage ends. Don't look there yet. Don't look. This passage ends. And verse 34 was such a cool statement. Some of you are looking. I love it. We all love God's word. Such a cool statement. Because Jesus has just had the barrage of questions. Trap one, trap two, trap three, trap four. And he's like, yep, nope, got you there. I'm the man. He steps all around him. And now look at how this passage ends here. End of verse 34. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
you get the sense that Jesus is at the podium of the press conference. Like, anyone else? Anyone else want to throw something out here? And remember that these isolated questions are a part of a bigger storyline here. They're part of the storyline of the religious leaders trying to wipe Jesus off of the scene here. And Jesus wins the verbal duel that's been going on. But they're about to take this from verbal, from a talk thing, to physical, to an action thing. It's Wednesday of Passion Week, and Friday's coming. And though he's won the verbal duels here, their indignation is rising all the more. The tension of what is being prepared for the cross is growing in this text here. And we'll see it as we continue the study through Mark. But I just want to say that with that in mind, that this is Wednesday of Passion Week with Friday coming, we just get... We just get to close our time here with an awesome chance to respond to that truth. We're going to close here in a few minutes by just taking communion together. And if you're serving communion, you can go ahead and head to where you need to be to serve that. But as we prepare our hearts for communion, and as we think about everything we've just studied here, there's, there's two things I want us to dwell on. When the scribe walked up and said, hey, tell me. What's the greatest command? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with an all-consuming love. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And as we think about where we're at with that, would we just remember something that we love because he first loved us, amen? That God's word tells us that he demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he came and he died for us. And we're just going to remember that death on the cross right now. But I want to go back to something the Sadducees asked as well. They came trying to disprove there's no resurrection, there's no afterlife. And it's because of that death, because of his love poured out for us on the cross, that there is hope of eternal life with him. There is life to come. And so as we just go in a few minutes here to get the elements, to just kind of sit and as we worship the Lord, just dwell on these facts, that all-in kind of love he's asking of me is the all-in kind of love he already has poured out for me. And he's worthy of it. He's the only one worthy of it. So will you, as we just kind of go to worship to close, please feel free to get out of your seats to go get the elements. We're inviting you. You don't have to be a member of Harvest Bible Chapel to do this. This is something for every believer. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, uh, this is open to you to partake in. So let's get the elements. After the song, I'll come back and lead us through a time of communion. <laughs>